The reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor or give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning not looking for an easy fix, like a true, like a rich and deep, mature relationship with you. God, would you just help reveal our identity just more clear, more full this morning? that we would truly grasp the love that you have for us so that we can share that love uh, in a more honoring way. So just be with us. Let us experience your presence and your goodness this morning. Bless the word and the teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, uh, go to Genesis 15. Genesis 15 will be like the big chunk that we're in today. Um, if you are just joining us, we are jumping into a, um, a teaching series we've been doing for the past couple weeks, and we will do into November. Um, it's called The Practice of Community. Um, really catchy and clever title, we know. Um, it's not. But uh, we just want to be on the nose. We want to be a community that practices the way of Jesus together. And so um, part of our year and our rhythm will be like putting practices in place that we um, see as really important to the DNA of who we are as a community. Um, We are preparing to move into smaller communities, into house churches, and and more on what that will look like um, as as we'll keep revealing that. But for now, we want to talk about just what is community? What does it look like to practice that? We've talked about um, discipleship happening in community. We've talked about the new family of God, new brothers and sisters that aren't just flesh and blood, like from our um, nuclear families, but we become a new family, adopted into the new family of God. And last week we tried uh, to teach through the concept that all of this community actually comes from the divine community, that God is Trinity. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus, his prayer in John 17 is the same love that's in the Father and in Jesus that they experience. Jesus' prayer is that like that would happen here. 
Jesus' prayers, that, that's what it would look like. And today I want to just kind of take that one step farther and have some like practical tools to that. What does God's love look like in Scripture? How is it expressed? And therefore, what does it look like for us? What does love look like? Um, and so no intro today, we're just going to jump in because there's a lot. But over and over, Paul is writing about the new way of Jesus to churches scattered throughout the Roman Empire, brothers and sisters of Christ meeting together in house churches, and collectively he has like one note that Paul just keeps playing. It's his favorite song. It's his favorite note. And here's just a sample of that. Uh, you know the next slide, River. Here's a few verses. Galatians 5 says, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Other in Galatians says, But the fruit of the Spirit, the first one he names, is love. It encompasses all the rest. Next verse, 1 Corinthians 16. Oh, go back one. He says, Do everything in love, and over all these virtues in Colossians 3, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Next verse. One more slide, River. There we go. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in the knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from, through Jesus Christ, so the glory and praise of God. Last verse is this. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Like a radical statement at that time. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Paul has a note that he wants to sing over and over again. And so the question I just want to look at today is what does that mean? Like what does it look like for love to exist between us? Is it definable? Um, if we take Paul at his word, love is the only thing that counts, even more than circumcision, which was fantastic news for the Gentile males at the time. Like, a, excuse me, Paul, what do you mean? There's 613 commands in Torah, and you're saying this one thing sums it up. Really? And I think Paul's response would be, love it expresses the totality of God's will for us. Love expresses the totality of God's will for us. What is God's will for us? More than just the specifics of our life is that we love one another. Becoming people who love um, is, is actually a practical thing. It's a practical thing that Paul, in the midst of the Roman Empire, says, I want you to grab this. I want you to understand this. I want this to be the reflection of what happens in your church. And taking the words of Jesus seriously and taking this exhortation from Paul serious would have been radical in this little first century churches scattered throughout the empire. You would have had Roman male heads of home now learning to love their wives in mutual submission. Radical for the household codes of the day. You would have Roman shopkeepers eating with kosher Jews and kosher Jews eating with Roman shopkeepers. You now have um, Greek merchants breaking bread with indentured slaves. You would have now pious Jewish women reading the sacred scriptures with prostitutes and migrant workers. This was the kingdom of God breaking in. 
It was heaven on earth. It was God's grand social experiment and restoration project. And at the gooey center of all of this, the only thing that would cultivate this type of community was love. But what is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me no more. I had to do it. Sorry. That's the question we're asking. What is love? Love sounds great until you're called to love somebody completely opposite of you, right? Love sounds great um, until you like actually meet your neighbor and you know who they are. Love is great until that person you can't stand decides to attend the same church as you. Love sounds wonderful until one of your friend's kids lose it again and you completely disagree with their parenting style, right? Love sounds great until you let your um, person in your community borrow your car and they damage it. It's in those crucibles that we have to like, need, we need a definition of what this is and so that, like, so that we can flourish, so that we can look like the community that Jesus desires, that Jesus died for, that Jesus um, released, his, like, released the spirit to create. We think we know what love is, but often in our surrounding culture, when we ask what love is, most of us would actually say, like if we asked our friends, most would say like, I can't actually define it. It seems like it's an undefinable word, but, but I know it when I what? When I f- most of it's I know it when I feel it, right? I, I can't define it truly, but I know it when I feel it. And that works, that's okay in some senses, but it, it's just a small sliver of what's actually, I think scriptures say that love is. I, I, I don't know, but I can actually, I know it when I feel it. And sadly, I would say that this is often the case in the Christian community of understanding what love is as well. I want to propose to you, it's, it's, it's definable in some ways as we look at how God loves. And one thing I want to do this morning is just frame up our definition of love. The first bank of the river is what love is not. We need to define Scripture's words like love. We can't define it by how like our current culture defines that word, Right? In other words, we can't look up love in the English dictionary and then apply it like to the text. Like when Paul, we read 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to read that at the end today. He's talking about love is like this, love is like this. What we can't do is take our current culture's understanding and just slap it on and be like, that's what he means by love. It's not that. If you Google right now the definition of love, the first line that comes up is this. So Google's definition, which I think is Google's in charge now anyway. So Google's definition says this. Love is an intense feeling and deep affection. The first line is love is an intense feeling. I know it when I feel it. And a deep affection. In the culture waters we swim in, love is often and most defined by emotions and by affections. It's the first thing that we usually look like, which is that definition is 100% shaped by a, a Western mindset and culture. It pales in comparison to the richness of what the scriptures mean by love. It is beyond an emotion. It is beyond affection. It includes some of that, but it is not reduced to that. So we must not allow our, our current culture's definition to define what biblical love is. But the other part of the bank is we must define love by what the scriptures show how, I say, we must define love in how the scriptures show that God loves. We understand love most when we look at our creator, at God, and we look and see how he loves, and then we reflect that. So we talked about last week a little bit. Next slide, I think you go to the, 
next one after this. We can experience, I'll read that, it's more. We can experience and know what love is by watching God love this specifically. Love Israel, love his son, and love the church. And in fact, in doing that, loving all creation. What that means is we look at how God loved Israel, for how he loved all of creation, how he specifically loved Jesus, his son, and how he loves his church today, revealed by God, by his people, by Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of God. These are kind of the two banks that we need as we dive in it today. It's not this, and it needs to look like this, God loving Israel, God loving Jesus, and God loving his church. These are the two banks of the river that will help us define. And most of us in this room um, who have followed Jesus for any amount of time, you know that love, like within the Christian community, is not just about feelings and affection. Like, I think we know this, but sometimes I wonder if it's a knowing like we know it cerebrally, like we have an idea of it is, but like practically on the boots on the ground, that like believing knowledge, the practicing knowledge is what I believe like God wants to invite us into. If you look at the movies we make as a culture, you look at the myths we tell, you look at the meta-narratives that we, um, that we bring in, our culture defines love as an emotional experience, basic pleasure, and instant gratification. Brain researchers point to that just being dopamine hits that hit our brain. The feeling of good pleasure, not just in romantic love, but in like family love, friendship love, community love. And what we've done is we've reduced love to mean those first moments of connection and attraction and experience and satisfaction. And again, those experiences are part of the process, but they are not the totality. Often we say we fall in love, but instead we should say like, I fell into a dopamine high, right? And then we redefine love to mean that ecstasy of the first experience the excitement of the first time we met a friend that had the same likings as we do, right? And we reduce love and we find it there. We must define love by watching how God loves specifically Israel, his son, and his church, and in fact, the whole creation. So how does God do this? I wanna introduce you to a Hebrew word first. Uh, go to the next slide. The Hebrew word is chesed. Everybody try saying it, chesed. It's a fun one to say. Chesed. Chesed means enduring covenant love. Um, often, well, I'll say in a second, but this is a word we see a lot, but actually scholars have a really difficult time translating this word. Um, it, there's just like not an English word that fully captures what it is. And so what they end up doing is they end up using a lot of words to describe it. Go to the next slide. Lamentations 3.22 says this. We know this verse. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. You've probably heard this verse. Um, that word steadfast love there is the word chesed. Um, other translations, if you have that in your Bible, some will say his great love, the great love of the Lord, the loyal kindness, loving kindness, mercies, faithful love. These are all words trying to, trying to like capture what chesed means. God reveals, when he reveals himself to Moses at Mount Sinai, he tells Moses his name. Moses says, I want to see your glory, God. And Moses reveals his glory. And he tells him his name. This is the most repeated passage in the Old Testament. Go to the next slide, River. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, 
and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and the children for the sin of their parents, the third and fourth generation. That the second thing, he's slow to anger and he's abounding in love is the word hased. And that is like a loyal care of a well-being of another. It is love that goes beyond the initial feelings of dopamine and, and, and pleasure. And it's like a covenant committed love. Like it's committed. Maybe that's one of the words I want to grab with it today. This is a committed love. A picture we get of it, like if you could imagine... Um, if some of you who do have kids in this room, like when you first see the babies and they're not crying and they're not throwing up on you and you actually get a little sleep at night, like that joy from your face, like when they, you look at a kid and that joy that happens on someone's face, um, this is kind of the picture of what this committed, loyal love looks like. We read the blessing at the end of our gathering, number six, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May God make his face what? Shine. What does a face shining on somebody look like? It's a smile. It's joy, right? This is like, this is baked into you and give you peace. This is a committed love. Um, so let's put some flesh on this. Uh, and, and because this is a committed love, that it, it's not um, reactionary to what the person does, whether good or bad. It's a committed love. Um, to put some flesh on that, Genesis 15, uh, we're gonna look at this bizarre story that happens to Abram about God's loving, loyal commitment and what it looks like when God makes his covenant with Abram. Um, Abraham, Abram, who will later be Abraham. And God, if you remember, called Abram to leave his father's house to go to a land that he would show him. Um, and this part of our reading just happens uh, after a decisive battle where Abram rescues Lot. And he's going to have this conversation with God. And it's the first time we actually see Abram going like, God, you promised something but like, how will I know? Um, before this time, uh, God has always promised to Abram, but we've never heard Abram's response. We've never heard Abraham's response yet. This is the first time we get to hear his response. So it'll be on the screens if you don't have it, but it's Genesis 15, 1. And here's the line. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Um, we'll skip a few verses, but to summarize it, Abraham answers with this, like, God, what can you give me? Um, I'm childless. I don't have a child. You're saying I'm going to inherit this land. I'm going to be the father of many nations, but I don't have a child. He starts maybe thinking, I guess I'll have to give my inheritance to a worker of mine. And to this, God says, no, I'm a God who keeps my promises. I will give you a son of your own flesh and blood. This is the scene where God takes Abram out, has him looks at a sky full of stars and says, like, your descendants will be more than that. Like, this promise comes. In verse 6, it'll be on the slide. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? He believes the Lord, but he still gets, he asks, like, how will I know? How will I know? God, I know your promises, but like this is, how, how will I know it's going to come to pass? Verse nine, so the Lord said to him, and this is where it gets a little bizarre. He says, for us anyway, he says, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove, and a young pigeon. Good so far. Verse 10, Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves on opposites of each other. 
The birds, however, he did not cut in half. So God says, bring these animals. Abraham knows right away what to do. What he does is he starts slicing the animals in half, and he puts one half over here, one half over here, and he kind of makes like, a, like an aisle, like right here, with dead animals on the side. And you're probably going like, strange? Like, why? Why is he doing that? It's strange to us what's going on here. What's happening is Yahweh, um, God, Yahweh is responding to Abraham and inviting him into a covenant ceremony that would closely pattern like an ancient Near East land treaty. In a sense, cutting animals in half, this was their way of signing the dotted line. Like this is, like I bought a house, thank God that we didn't have to do it this way, right? Like I just walked into a mortgage company and I signed a stack of paperwork. Maybe it would have been easier to do the animal thing. But he's inviting Abraham into a covenant ceremony that, that but Abraham would have been, would have known about. This is how they did it. Essentially what they would do is you would have two parties that needed to make an agreement. They would cut these animals in half. They would leave them to the side. They would, in a sense, create a trail of blood. And then both parties, instead of shaking hands, instead of siding the dotted line, they would walk through the middle aisle of blood, in essence saying, if I break my covenant with you, may this happen to me. Does that make sense? So like brutal, but also like sombering and sobering and like, if I had to make a promise with you and I walked through that and was like, oh my goodness, maybe that's how we should do weddings from here on out. I'm not sure. Maybe not. But Abraham intuitively knows what this is. He gets to work. He cuts him up. He lays him aside. And he waits for God to show up so that they can both walk through and they can make a covenant together. What happens? Verse 11. Next slide. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. Just a little side note. I've always loved this little detail. Um, like, what is it? I was thinking about like, the sun was setting and the day is ending. God, what's going to happen here? It says, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation that, serves, that they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possession. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried in a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. It's a little strange, right? Instead of doing like the thing God says, hey, a couple, like a lot more chapters in the Bible, your descendants are gonna be slaves. Like, it's a little foreshadowing of what's going to happen, what God gives Abraham here. Verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the two pieces. Read that again, verse 17. When the sun had set, it's now dark, and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and it passed between the two, the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land. We'll stop there. You can read the rest later if you'd like. Notice something. Who walked through the animals? Did Abram walk through the animals? No, Abraham, what's Abraham doing? He's sleeping, right? He's to the side. It says in verse 17, when the sun set a smoking fire bar, Abram sees a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appear. And what I think this is is a foreshadow of the way that God would lead Israel through Exodus, through, a, through a, a cloud by day and fire by night. 
But notice here, it is God alone in a form of a smoking pot and a flame that walks through the carcasses. Abraham doesn't even walk through it. In a land covenant, you need two people. If we're making a promise, it's me and you. Like, we're, we're shaking hands. And what God does is almost like puts Abraham's hand over here and says, I'm going to walk through. I'm going to walk through on behalf of both of us. What he's essentially saying, and I think that's why the foreshadow is to Israel in the Exodus, what he's essentially saying is even if you're not faithful to this covenant, I'm a God who will be faithful no matter what. This is said, loyal love. Even if you are faithless, I will be faithful. Even if you turn away from the covenant, there will be times when I'm angry, but I'm slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And only like the punishment will go to three to four generations, but my goodness to thousands of generations. This is who God is. It's a loyal love where God commits to loving us despite ourselves. Like what is this type of love? This is Hased. Love is not primarily an emotion or affection, but rather a covenant commitment to another person. Commitments, they don't deny emotions. Commitments don't deny emotions, but they reorder emotions. Does that make sense? Those of you who've been married for longer than me, I think you, you'd tell me this too. Commitments, they're not denying emotions, but they're reordering. The commitments first, the emotions follow. It's opposite from, from the other bank of the river that we have currently in our culture. Meaning in a commitment, emotions, though they're important members of the crew, they're not in charge of steering the ship, right? In Scott McKnight's book, which is where like these uh, four things we're going to talk through came from, um, he has a great book called A Fellowship of Difference, um, which is about church community and how like our fellowship of difference, I love that line. But he uses this term uh, to describe Hased, and I love it. Uh, next slide. He calls it rugged commitment. Rugged commitment. And in his explanation of the term, he says, intentionally using rugged commitment, or the word rugged, next to the word commitment because it expresses the journey that commitment leads us into. It's rugged. That's what the journey that commitment leads us into. It takes us from being people who are with one another just because we're compatible, but now we're with one another because of our rugged commitment. C.S. Lewis, can we throw this next line up there, River? C.S. Lewis says this, um, one of his books, he says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, meaning your love, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, and motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, unpenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Get what he's, he's saying there? To love it all is to be vulnerable. It is a rugged commitment, and yet we still say yes to it. Our love for one another in community as we're practicing community cannot be defined simply by how we're feeling in the moment, by our, um, by our affections or the excitement that it brings, but it must be defined by how God demonstrates his love to Israel, like we saw with Abraham, his son and Jesus, like we saw last week, and the church. 1 John 4, 11, throw this up there. Dear friends, since God so loved us, 
we also ought to love one another. So we, we still try every time. Um, and for some reason, every spring, we forget about this truth. And we go on Pinterest or whatever, TikTok, and you just like all of a sudden like, oh, I'm going to be a gardener this. And it's going to be great. Everything's going to be fantastic. Um, and so we're going to probably do it again this spring. Uh, but we decide like we're going to have this like little small garden and, and learn how to do this. Um, and it just never goes well. But this year uh, was our second go around. We thought, hey, we're going to apply some of the lessons we learned from the first year. And so what we did is we repositioned plants like like, hey, we tried to grow this, and it just completely killed the strawberries because it just over, overgrew it. And this was, we didn't know that this was a type of plant that was a vine, and it just took over everything. So we learned that lesson. And so what we did is we just arranged, rearranged plants. Um, and this year, uh, to nobody's um, shock, was, it didn't go well. Nothing happened. It was, uh, it was horrible um, and maybe mediocre at best. And what we failed to do, and we learned this this year, is what we failed to do is to focus on the most important part of growing a plant and that's the soil like we just didn't give that any attention in fact this year like things started growing out of the soil like fungus and we're like this is bad and we ripped it all up and this year like we're like we're gonna do better probably not but we're gonna do better we're gonna learn about soil this year but it got me thinking because when we talk about love what we're talking about is good soil here and the things as we look into what god how he defines love in the scriptures we're talking about healthy ingredients in a soil of community where things can grow Often in the life of the community, we focus too much on the wrong parts of growth and maturity. Like us, we just start moving plants around, right? Well, it'll be better over here. It'll be better over here. Oh, this one has more sunlight. And what we need to do is we need to look at, like a deep look at the soil and the ingredients that we have in there. Jesus in Matthew 13 gives us one of his most famous parables about the kingdom. Um, in the Synoptic Gospels, all three of them, they, they like highlight this. This is a really important parable to Jesus. And in this parable, he focuses on the soil in which the seed is received, the seed of the kingdom. Some soil, if you remember the story, it falls on the path where there's no soil at all, and birds just come and take it. Some soil fi finds its, some seed finds its way into some soil that's really rocky, and so it, it, it sprouts up really quick, but it has nothing to grab onto, and the sun scorches it, and it dies away. Some soil is mixed with, like, weeds that have thorns, and it just chokes it up. And then he says, and some fell on the good soil. And so as we turn our attention to how God loved Israel, Jesus, and his church, I want you to see these as good ingredients in the soil of community that reflects the love that the Father has with the Son and the way that, the the, that, the way that they love the church and the world. This is the ingredients of a healthy soil. The first one's this. Um, go to the next slide. Remember? Uh, one more after this. This one, rugged commitment. I'm going to use uh, Scott McKnight's word because I love it. In a healthy soil of community, at the center of God's promise of, uh, to Israel is to be with them. It is a rugged commitment to be with. Hased is a rugged commitment to be with. The entire camp of Israel, if you remember, was concentric circles around the hotbed of God's presence in the tabernacle. God is like dwelling among them again. Eden begins again. It's the holy of holies, God's very presence in the center of their camp. God's deepest commitment to us as followers like, is, is reflected in Jesus' incarnation. The second person of the Trinity entered into human flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. We're going to prepare for Advent soon to remember this. If there's any doubt of God's withness, we look at Jesus and how he invades humanity. 
He takes on flesh. And if that wasn't enough, after the resurrection, God sends his very presence through his spirit to us. Revelation 22 talks about the new creation, the new heavens and earth, the resurrection, when God dwells with his people. A rugged commitment is to be with each other. It's presence. It's our nearness. This is what God shows us over and over again in the story. When Adam and Eve were four, to be for one another. Love in the scripture is not um, a quick love. It's an enduring love. It's a nearness. It's a posture. To be for somebody is to be their advocate. It's to be their advocate. God's love is a supporting strength. He is our help. He is on our side. He advocates for us. 1 John 2, 1 through 2. Throw the slide up there. It says this. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. How is Jesus an advocate for us? He atoned for our sins through his sacrifice. And not just ours, the verse says the entire world, that our collective and individual rebellion, our sin, our mess, our distance from God, God, we have an advocate in God the Father and in Jesus Christ who took the sins upon himself on the cross, died for our sins, recycled out forgiveness. And so in our search for a definition of love, this is forness, like it's presence. God is with us, not just with us though. He's for us. And so in the same way as we practice community, we become people who are with one another and now for one another. To bear someone's burdens, an advocate pursues at a great cost. What does love like this look like in a community? A love like this, as even it says right there in the verse, a love like this can bear the weight of bad choices and bad character. A said, rugged commitment love is with somebody and it can actually bear the weight and it advocates for. Um, and just to add like an unfortunate realistic note into this, as we are new creations in Christ, on this side of the resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom is now and it's still coming. And in that space, there is a now and the not yet. And so we don't live yet in the realized Revelation 21. And so as we practice and we advocate for each other, there are times when like relationships fracture. Like especially when there's abuse. Like sometimes relationships, they do have to end. And we just have to say that now. Like not everything's always peachy king. Not re- all relationships last. And even among Jesus' followers, like grace is present in that time. And we still pray like, come Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. And though we have to walk through those moments in community, the ideal is that we are with and that we advocate for. Last is this. Rugged commitment to be with, a rugged commitment to be for, and lastly is a rugged commitment to be unto. Next slide. Love is a rugged commitment to be with, to be for, to be unto. What does that mean, unto? Um, God is not only with us, but advocates for us. And his love in that way is directional. Unto means directional. God, God is, God's love is a directional type of love, meaning God's love is a transforming type of love, meaning that when God loves like this, it, he transforms us into becoming more loving. 
God's love just doesn't leave us where we are. It actually matures us and it, it grows us up. It allows us to take some of those things, those sins in our life and to like repent and to let those go and to grow in maturity. God's love just doesn't leave us somewhere. It beckons us to become who we actually are in him. To recognize our shadow side of ourselves, to die to that self and to become more like but the other thing we learned about our personalities in a funny way is Liz is the type of person who's very organized and very structured and I'm, I'm just not that way. Um, and within the first couple of years, like we're trying to pay bills, we're trying to do something. And I remember her looking at me going like, where's your to-do list? And I was like, I've never made a to-do list in my life. What are you talking about? And she was like, who did I marry? Um, I was like, there's no way. But 15 years later, um, like I, I almost, I can't function really without a to-do list now. Like, I, I can't, fun I have like a, it's organized, it's mapped out. She never once said, Brandon, like, if you don't do a to-do list, this is going to be a problem. Like, she never once told me I needed to do it. But just me being around her for 15 years, I just, I, I transformed, right? I was like, oh, I do a to-do list now. That's who I am. And it's been beneficial. I don't always kill it, but like, it's been beneficial to me. In the same way, like, our mutual indwelling of one another had a transformative effect, that make sense? In the same way when we're in God's presence, when we're with God, he transforms us. In the same way when we're with each other in community, it has a transforming effect. Meaning we will mature and we will grow. And that's often when we see the rub and the tension is it's the Spirit's invitation to grow up and to learn how to become people of love. Lastly, with this, order is important. God's love is a love that is with us, it's for us, it's unto us, and that order is important. Go to the next slide. Um, the order is important. It starts with God's loving commitment, joy. Then God moves in, it's with. And then God advocates for. And then in that time, then we begin to grow, right? Then it's unto. We begin to transform. We get to work out all the problems and the kinks. And often in community, just to name it, we usually get the order mixed up. Um, go to the next slide. We usually go this way. And this is where I would say it doesn't look like how God loved Israel, loved Jesus, and loved the church. We often start first with unto. We start with loving correction first. In order to get my said, this person needs to be corrected, get their act together, look different. Then they get my forness my advocacy, then they get my presence, and then they get my loyal love. And this in a community is the reverse order. It's the reverse order of God. It actually is not the good, healthy soil used properly this way. Go back to the next slide, River. What God says is this, first you get my loyal love. I walk through the aisle first, right? I, I do that first. Then you'll know that I'm with you then you know that I'm my advocate. And then when loving correction comes, it can be received, right? It can be received. To love one another means that we are committed to them even when it's demanding and difficult and sometimes seemingly impossible. To love one another means that we are committed to being with them, giving them our presence. To love one another, us, means that we know who we are we can and who we are and if there's loving directional correction towards christ likeness wholeness love 
and ultimately full maturity of Christ, which looks like love, has said love. The gospel kinds us to this type of practice and community. Paul's famous line, it's what Brooke and uh, Jake read earlier, and I've, I've purposely not read the passage yet because I don't want to read this passage with commentary now. Um, we're going to read 1 Corinthians, and then we're going to take communion together. This is actually, this is a picture of, of unity in Christ. It's a picture of like God's gone before us. We take the bread, Christ's body. We take the cup, Christ's blood. God's already done it. And we simply take, receive, or remember what he's done. We remember as we all eat the bread collectively together. It's a picture of Christ in us. It's a reflection of that love. And so we're going to read 1 Corinthians 13, then we're going to worship, and we're going to take communion. Um, and again, I don't want to have any commentary on it. With that idea of love, of has said, of it being um, with and for and unto, hear how important it is to Paul, and then we'll pray. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 11. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have a gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can, like, that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and I give my body to hardships that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. Always hopes always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there's prophecies, it will cease. Where there's tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only in reflection as a mirror. Then we will see him face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Verse 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Love like God, how God loves Israel, Jesus, the church. May we become people of love. Um, may you enter into that. May we, it takes practice. May we practice it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Um, again, just for this passage.